ready to grow your business by building relationships online and offline? Are you looking for a system to attract new prospects and nurture your past clients? Maybe you're a business owner, a sales professional, or an entrepreneur. If you are, then great. Join me, Janice Porter, as we blast past your barriers to success and explore the power of relationships for your business. And welcome to the Relationships Rule Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the today's episode of the Relationships Rule Show. I'm Janice Porter, your host, and my guest this week, coming from warm, sunny Scottsdale, Arizona, is Jeremy Miner. First of all, welcome to the show, Jeremy. Hey, it's not that warm here in Scottsdale. It's only, you know, like 110 degrees today. It's yes. too hot for me, I'll tell you. No, it's a dry heat. Yes, that's true. That's true. I have been there, but not Everybody in the summer. Everybody says it's a dry heat, though. Oh. Yeah, right. Whatever. So Jeremy is a sales trainer, founder and chairman, author and podcast host himself. He is the uh, chairman of Seventh Level and a global sales training company that was uh, ranked pretty darn high as one of the uh, fastest growing companies in the U.S. by Inc. Magazine's list of the top 5,000 companies in 2021. And I'm going to make a quote. Um, quote here, something that I see on his um, one sheet that I want to start with, because I think it's kind of fun. The single most effective way to sell anything to anyone in 2022 is to be a problem finder and a problem solver, not a product pusher. And for Jeremy, the embodiment of this philosophy has made him one of the wealthiest sales professionals on the planet and gives him the right to tell us about this kind of thing and show us why it works. He's been in the sales industry for many, many years. And let's start there, Jeremy. Let's dig right in and say, you know, how is today's um, uh, customer or prospect different? And why is it so important, first of all? for us to be a problem finder and a problem solver, not a product pusher. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take everything you just said. There's a big compliment because my kids say I'm pretty boring. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, let's, let's just jump right into it. I think one of the biggest problems that sales professionals and companies have there's, and there's a lot because, you know, well, I'd say the biggest problem is the problem that you don't know you have. That's the biggest problem, because if you don't know what your problem is, how do you know what to do to even change if you don't even know what the problem is in the first place? So let's talk about problem finding, problem solving, what that actually means. One of the biggest things we see when companies bring us in for like sales audits with their salespeople is a lot of companies quite seriously believe that because their products and services are so great, which every company thinks they have great products and services, that's why they're in business. Right. Because they believe that, that somehow everyone's just going to line up and want to buy it because they believe that, right? We call that product pushing. One thing we we have to understand when you're going back and saying, hey, how has the prospect changed? Your prospects that you're talking to uh, with any type of marketing or especially as a salesperson are more cautious and skeptical about making the wrong buying decisions than they have ever been before. Now, why is that phenomenon happening? It's always been around, but it's like progressively growing, okay? So one of our clients, uh, his name's Brandon Kane. He's a best-selling author of the book called Hook Point. 
um, How to Stand Out in a Three-Second World. He does all the social media for MTV and uh, Rihanna and Taylor Swift and all the cool people over there in Hollywood. Yeah. So in his book, he says, and I might be butchering it, Brandon, so if you're listening, don't <laughs> be mad at me, but he said there are over 3 billion, 3 billion with the B, content creators every day trying to attract your prospect's attention away from what you do. You are competing even with 13-year-old teenagers on TikTok, okay, as far as taking away your prospect's attention. Now, how many content creators do you think there were 20 years ago? Take a wild guess, Jens. Content creators, maybe a million at the most. You're actually right. There's oh. right. There was right a little bit over a million, a million and some change. That's the first person that's ever got the right. <laughs> right now there are 3 billion 20 yeah. years later okay that's because we live in the information age that's where we're at with power of the internet especially social media we have to understand your prospects are being sold to 24 hours a day seven days a week week after week month after month every single year now when i say that at events people are like no 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 jeremy i'm not i don't get sold to that much i only take a couple sales calls a day it's not that bad. I'm like, okay, I want you to think about that for a second. When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you typically do? Besides maybe going to the bathroom, you pick up your phone, yeah. you get on your social media. Your favorite one is you start going through your, your Instagram or, or IG or whatever, you know, your Facebook, and you see what? Ads trying to sell you something. So it starts the moment you wake up, you go into your kitchen. You go, oh, I'm so tired. Start pouring the coffee. You got to get ready for work or wherever you're going. You turn on the TV, you hear and see what commercials trying to sell you something. You then get into your car. You turn on the radio because you love your music. You love your Britney Spears, but you hear radio ads trying to do what? Sell you something. You drive it keeps going. You drive down the road. You're like, oh, these beautiful things. And you start seeing billboards on the side of the road trying to do what? Sell you something. You then go to lunch from your office, you get back on your social media and you notice your aunt is pitching her newest, latest and, and greatest uh, Tupperware you know, program that she's in. So we are constantly being sold to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And because of that phenomenon, human beings have built up a wall of resistance anytime they feel that someone is trying to sell them something. Okay. So that's what we have to understand. This is what we are competing with day in and day out is our prospects attentions being pulled in a billion different ways. They're constantly being sold to. So that when they hear any type of wording that triggers something they remember from a salesperson, it's like the red flash goes on and the wall comes up and that's what you're having to compete with. Now, Instead of competing with that, let's learn how to disarm that. Let's learn how to disarm the prospect where they actually want to engage, where they want to open up to us and tell us what's really going on. So let's talk about problem finding for a second. All right. In our day and age, you have to be much better because every book back here that you can see here is going to say you have to be a problem solver. Now, I agree with that 100 percent. People have been saying that for 100 years. But here's the issue. If you can't help your prospects find what their real problems are and build a gap in their mind from where they go for where they are compared to where they want to be, if you can't be a problem finder, well, they don't buy from you. And if they don't buy from you, you can't be a problem solver. So you first have to be the much better problem finding, especially now when your prospects are more cautious and skeptical than they've ever been. And that means asking the right questions, but at the right time, the right delivery that helps your prospects view problems in their mind that they didn't even know they have. 
And one thing we all have to understand is that most of your prospects, when you first start talking to them, don't even realize they have a problem. Even if they book with you, schedule on your calendar. Now they might know they have some type of problem, but most of them don't really know how bad the problem really is. And they don't know the consequences of what will happen if they don't do anything about solving the problem. Now, once you learn, but we, we can talk about that in a minute, NEPQ, uh -huh. neuro emotional persuasion questions, you learn how to get the prospect to open up. Not only are you skilled enough to help them see what their real problem is, but you can also help them see in their mind that they have two or three or four other problems they didn't even realize they had. That's not telling them they have problems. If you tell somebody they have problems, what it's going to go in one ear out the other. You're biased. You're the salesperson. It's by asking the right questions that allows them to tell themselves what those problems are. Okay, so that's what we mean by problem finding. Now, when you're able to do that, how do they start to view you? They're viewing you much differently than all these pushy salespeople trying to stuff their solution down. There's they try to get rid of. They start to view you as more of the expert, more of the what we would call the trusted authority who's mm -hmm. going to get them where they want to go. Okay, now, what most salespeople do, we call them product pushers, right? We're taught how to ask a few consultative questions. Uh, John, what's your problems that keep you awake at night? Or what type of solution are you looking for? What's your budget for solving this problem? Those are just surface level questions that the prospect is going to give you surface level answers in return. And then what do we do? As soon as they say some type of problem, we go right into our pitch. Oh, well, let me tell you how we can solve that. We talk about our features and benefits of the product and service. Now we have the best this and the best that, which by the way, doesn't every salesperson say they have the best product or service? right so when we sound like everybody else yeah where where do we go in our prospects mind where all the other salespeople have gone and, and they throw us over in the corner and try to commoditize us so when we say product push it's like taking a bucket of mud and like throwing it up against the wall hoping and praying that something we're going to say is going to magically trigger the prospect to want to buy and we call that hoping it's a drug <laughs> that so many salespeople and entrepreneurs take where they just hope and pray Something catchy, they say, is going to magically cause them to buy. And that's a very hard and unpredictable way to make a living. You with me? I've been talking too much. No, no, it's all very valid. And, and what I keep thinking as you're talking about it, though, is, you know, I'm all about building relationships. And as I build relationships with people, I'm I'm building trust with them. And, you know, that, that cliche that we do business with people we know, like, and trust, there is some truth to that. And if, when I'm listening to somebody sell, trying to sell me something and I, you know, if I can see through that, as you said, with those um, surface type questions and, and um, inauthenticity, if that's a word, inauthenticity, then it's not going to happen. If I feel because I come from my heart, if I feel there's some level of honesty and they're trying to get to know me and really care enough to be able to help me, then I will open up more to them and I will start to trust them, right? Yeah. Mind you, if they cross me, watch out. But, you know, I, I also know a lot of people and I, and I will, uh, you know how they used to say that if in, in customer service, um, yeah. You know, if you had a good experience, you told four or five people. If you had a bad experience, you told maybe 10 or 12. Well, you know, all your social media people. Yeah, now it's just oh, thousands. Yeah, exactly. Can we talk about the no like, and trust thing? Sure, I'd love it. Yeah. I'm out of the box here. I, you know, I, I say things that just make 
people mad. Mm-hmm. I don't know. All right. So no like and trust. Now that's a great book comes from Dale Carnegie, right? 1936. Mm-hmm. Problem is, are prospects the same in 1936? Do they have the same buying behaviors as people do in 2020? No, of course not. It's just not. No. People in our day will buy based on the person or company who they feel can get them the best result, not just who they like. If they like you, that's just a bonus. But at the end of the day, if they see a company or a person that they feel can get them the best result compared to they love grandma, grandma's selling the same thing, but they don't necessarily think grandma can get them the same result. Who are yeah, they based on, based on five-star reviews, based on what they see. Based on, on the credibility yeah. of the sales professional with their questioning ability, because, Hey, you might love the local butcher down, down the street or the local, uh, you know, seamstress that makes good quality clothes, but you're not necessarily buying from them compared to buying from Amazon because Amazon possibly you think gives you a better result. You don't like Amazon. It's not like you hang out with Jeff Bezos, but you still buy because they give you a better result. So in our day and age, people buy based on who they feel can get them the best result, not necessarily they just like them, right? And that's a lot different than in 1936. In 1936, you were buying from Uncle Uncle Joe or Aunt Betty or whatever. But in our day and age with social media and the internet, we're buying based on the results we feel we can get. Now, if they like you, that's just a bonus. Yeah, but liking you is one piece. Trust is another. And when it comes and, it, and what comes along with that and where I'm still perhaps a little bit old school is um, loyalty. Well, the people buy do they do they do they have trust based on them feeling that somebody can get them a better result or are they going to trust the person who they like but they don't know if they can get them that result no i don't think they trust in either case in that trust in is built on our credibility by our questioning skills it gets the prospect to think differently than they've ever thought before and that's why i'm saying like grandma can be selling the same thing as this company yeah. but you're not necessarily you love grandma you lo- you trust grandma like grandma's honest with you but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to buy from her over somebody else who you know can bigger results. Yeah, yeah. You don't even have to like that other person. You don't even know them. You you talk to them on a couple of sales calls, but you know their track record and the results they've brought in. And you've got Graham over here who you love. Who are you going to buy from? You're going to buy from the person that gets you the best result. And that's changed. That dynamic has definitely shifted since 1936. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many salespeople struggle because they believe their job is to get the prospect to like them. Hey, how are you doing, Janice? How's the weather over there? How's your day going? None of that builds any trust. It doesn't build credibility. People see right through that kind of stuff because they know you're generally not interested in how their damn day is going. Like who, who's, who literally, like if a salesperson gets on a call and says, how are you doing today? I'm like, I don't have time for that. You no. know that they're not genuinely interested and in you spouting off for the next 20 minutes how your days go. See, it automatically triggers resistance because every salesperson's done that to you. But to that's the inauthenticity piece. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. But people have, they think if I can get them to like me, they're going to buy from me. And they're thinking about it backwards. Yeah. Okay. It's about to see the results you can bring them. And that builds a gap in their mind. Now, if they like you, it's a bonus. It doesn't mean you're a jerk to them, 
But I'm just saying uh, at, on, a, on a level where you're just a neutral salesperson yeah. who they feel can get the best result based on your questioning skills, it's allowed them to think much differently than the other salesperson, their neighbor who they like, they're buying from the person that they feel can get them the best result all, all day long, even if they have to pay more to get the best result. Oh, they for sure. And, and what you're saying, though, is coming back to the, um, the questions that you ask being um, fruitful for you, but also as you're opening them up with your questioning. And I, I agree with you. It's I think helping the prospect really. Yes. Yes. Because, for me, it's helping them. Yeah, no, I get that. And, and the thing is, that's an art. That's totally an art. And so let's bring it's it to the learnable art because it's a learnable, learnable art. It's a learnable art because nobody is born out of their mother's womb with advanced questioning skills and advanced tonality. Does anybody know anybody born out of the most of the advanced <laughs> questioning tonality skills? Those are, those are skills you acquire. Those are skills anyone can learn. Introverted, extroverted, you know, the one in the middle now, it's a new name. Anybody can learn those skills. Yeah, ambivert, right? Ambivert, ambivert something like that, yeah. yeah. Like okay, that. talk to me about, talk to me about um, neuroemotional persuasion questioning. That's your NEPQ, that's your... Um, version of um, what you train on, how you get people to be those, those, um, those questioners, those. All that science kind of stuff. All right. So I'll give you, I'll just give you the overview of that. Yeah. Right. And I'll give it in terms where it's not, you know, I, I, you know, unless you're in behavioral science, cause that's what I was in in college, unless you're in behavioral science, me throwing out some scientific terms wouldn't mean anything to anybody. So I'm going to give it in terms that a salesperson or a business owner would be like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so when I was in college, like I said, I was in behavioral science and human psychology. That's what I studied. So study the brain. It's really at the core of it. It's why human beings, why and how, what is the process of a human being's decision-making process? How and why is somebody persuaded to do something or think a certain way compared to doing something or thinking a different way on the other side, right? So check this out, according to behavioral science. So there are three forms of communication. Now, if everybody's driving, try to write these down. If you're at home, you got a pen, write these down. Once you understand the differences in persuasion and where you're at right now in your current sales ability, Mm -hmm. where you could be, even if you're already doing well, it will completely change everything for you. So the first mode of communication is era. So ERA, era one type of sales. I won't give you the scientific term, but this term I'm going to give everybody, they would know what this means. Boiler room selling, boiler room selling. That's the first mode of selling. So we are the, everybody I think knows what that means. So we're the least persuasive when we tell people things or we attempt to dominate them or posture them or manipulate them or push them into doing something we want them to do. Hey, John, it's uh, Jeremy Miner with XYZ Company. Hey, listen, do you have two minutes of, of, of time where I can talk about how our solutions can help you guys save money? See, that's boiler room selling, right? It's all about you. Two minutes of your time. Nobody believes that, right? So think boiler room selling, Wolf on Wall Street type of selling. Hey, I've got a great opportunity for you. Then we talk about the features and benefits of what we do. And then we push and tell them why they need to buy or why they need to go with us. And, it, you know, it's kind of like if you told your spouse that they really, really need to do something for you. And then you keep pushing them to do it. What do they typically do back? They don't do it. <laughs> they push back. It's just, it's human behavior 101, right? And some sales people just haven't caught up to that. Oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. So we're the least persuasive when we do the following. When we present. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, let me preference that. You have to have a presentation, but let's talk about what a presentation is. We're all taught 
We had to have an amazing presentation. Got to slow on the, you know, the 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 sixty minute, you know, worth of slide decks in the boardroom. How great our products and services are. We got the best. This here's our corporate office. We're AAA rated with the Better Business Bureau. We won the JD Power Associates Award seven times. Here's seventeen of our big clients, which goes in one ear out the other. Which, by the way, just like we talked about. How many salespeople that you've ever talked to say, oh, yeah, 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 our product's fifth best in the market? Nobody does. Everybody says they have the best. So when we say that, I'm not, I'm not saying to go in and say you have the fifth best, but you also don't need to want to go in and say, we are the best. We want to be more neutral because everybody has heard that one billion times. Mm-hmm. So when you say the same things that every other salesperson has ever said to them selling anything, your prospects, just so everybody knows, actually trust you less Mm-hmm. especially if you talk down about your competitors because you're used to every salesperson saying the same thing. Right. So according to the data, it's not very persuasive if your presentation is more than 10% of your entire sales process. The average presentation with most salespeople in B2B and B2C sales, both, is a little bit over 50%. We have to lower that down to about 10. Okay, and there's strategies for that. Now, telling your story. Hate to tell you this. Nobody cares about your story when you're selling one-to-one. Whose story do they care about? Their own. Their own story. Magically, I couldn't imagine why they'd care about the story. Give it a sales pitch. So saying things like, you know, hey, uh, John, can you really help me out? I'm trying to hit quota this month and we're doing a promotion. If you would buy, it would put me over quota. That's just going to cause people to run the other way. They don't care about you. That's nothing to them. <laughs> Stop with the madness. It doesn't work as everybody knows that tries those tactics. Right. Sounds desperate. Give it a sales pitch. I've been taught you have to give a great pitch. Do you ever watch, I know you're up in Canada. Do you ever watch um, Shark Tank? All the time. I love okay. it. Okay. I, I, some people do, some people don't. So it seems you got Mark Cuban, Barbara, yeah. Damon, you've got Mr. Wonderful Kevin, some of those they, they bring in. I want you to watch the body language of the sharks when the would-be entrepreneurs come out and start pitching. Yeah. Watch how they react to some of that. The more excited the, <laughs> the, the entrepreneur is, I want you to watch how they react. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, get rid of the commission breath over here, buddy. All right. And the big one is assuming the sale. According to the data, very low on the persuasion poll, especially if you're in more of a complex sound environment that requires multiple calls and touches. All right. Now that's the first mode. Okay. Second mode is era two type of sales. That's more known as consultative selling. That's kind of what I'm going to give the, the term in, so the scientific term. All right. So consultative selling came out in the late eighties, bunch, bunch of different books. One of the biggest ones was uh, by Neil Rackham, who is a college professor called spin. He has a book called spin selling. Okay. Where they taught you need to ask logical based questions to find out the needs of the client. Okay. Which made sense. Oh, I can't imagine asking questions to find out the needs. But what's the potential downfall of the approach when you're basically asking primarily logical-based questions? We call those surface-level questions. Well, your prospect's going to give you logical-based answers in return. Right. Do people buy on logic or emotion? Emotion, right? Brain studies prove that 100%. They just justify with logic. So if you're still using consultative questions like, what's keeping you awake at night, Sally? Or can you tell me two problems that you're having the most? Or who besides you would be involved in this decision? So we want to relanguage that instead yeah. of trying to get to a, the other decision makers. Let's say if you're in a B2B sales, instead of saying who besides you would be involved in the decision, which every single salesperson asks the same question. So they immediately put you in that category like everybody else. Mm-hmm. I'm going to relanguage that. I want to bring out, I want to go under the surface. Sally, can you, um, can you walk me through your 
um, company's decision-making process when it comes to solving these type of problems? See, I'm asking the same question, mm -hmm. but I'm asking it in a way that opens them up more to go below the surface. And then I'm going to clarify and probe off of his or her answers. That's just an example, all right? Uh, all right, so we, we want to stay away from the surface level questions. Now, there's some surface level questions we have to ask to find out the situation, but we then have to clarify and probe to take them deeper than the surface, right? That's where the sales made, right? That's the second one. So you're more persuasive than boiler room selling, okay? Mm -hmm. But you have to play the numbers game because very little emotion is brought out by simply asking logical-based questions. All right, now, third mode. Let's talk about the exciting stuff. Supportive mm -hmm. behavioral science, we're the most persuasive when we allow others to persuade themselves. What? How do you allow somebody to persuade themselves, right? That's called dialogue. So that's what we're talking about. When you're asking what are called neuroemotional persuasion questions, that stands for NEPQ. Now, everybody always asks me, that sounds great, Jeremy. How do I get somebody to persuade themselves? That's a $10 billion. That's the they one trillion They talk themselves dollars. into it, right? They talk, themselves, they talk themselves into it. Well, they're not going to talk themselves into it by you saying, hey, go ahead and persuade yourself. No. No, How no, do we set that up, right? So we have to learn specific skilled questions yeah. and when and how to ask them. Like, did you notice the difference in my tonality when I asked that other question, walk me through yeah. compared to the way I said the one before? Completely different tone gives me a much thoughtful, more deeper answer from the prospect. That's what I mean by how we're asking it. Right. You have to ask that in a step-by-step -step structure that will get your prospects to pull you in and sell themselves rather than you trying to force that and push them to do that. Okay. So that would be the difference in the three modes of sales and persuasion. Bunch of bunch of boring science nerd stuff, I know. Well, no, I mean, I think um, it's obviously based on like NLP type training, right? And as it's quite well, a bit different than NLP. Is that? A bunch of NLP courses. Yeah. I mean, I like NLP, uh, but a lot of NLP stuff is a lot, a, a lot for like speakers and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Yes. It's quite a bit different selling one to many compared to one to one. So there's, I mean, there's okay. probably some aspects of it. I love NLP, but NEPQ would probably be much, much different for sure. Well, I think, you know, in, in both cases, I'm sure it's be observant, be a good listener. It's not just about the talking part, right? It's, it's watching how people react to what you're saying and, and um, moving them in the right direction, right? There's art, there is an art to it. It's listening to what the prospect means, not just what they're saying. Good point. Yeah. That's the difference in listening. If we're just listening, yeah. it's completely different than listening to what they mean, not just what they say. Yeah, absolutely. What Listening to what's not being said, I used to say when I was keeping. Yeah, listen to what they mean or is not being said, not yeah. just what they're saying. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Um, I mean, we could talk for hours about this because I see the passion in you in what you do. And I'm sure that when you're training and you're in front of a group of people, you're even more um, dynamic about it because I see and I hear the passion in your voice. I'm not, um, that, I'm not that cool, but thanks for the compliment. <laughs> okay, well, um, you know, when you're talking about like era two, for example, is that where we got to the ABCs of always be closing? ABCs would be era one, always be closing. Okay. We're, we're more focused, like at seventh level and with, with our clients, because we, yep. we train, we train 158 industries. Okay. How many industries are in their world? According to Forbes, 158. Then there's <laughs> subsets of it. So we're in every industry from yeah. insurance to financial services to yep. real 
estate agents to network marketers to cybersecurity sales to technology to i mean we are car sales like anything that is any product or service that is sold that either a solves a problem or b solves an emotional need we are training companies in that and salespeople, if that makes sense. So yes. uh, it's, it's all about, does your prospects have problems that you talk to? Yes, probably, right? No, I don't think anything's ever been. Now, well, let me give you a story about that. It's kind of interesting. So one of our first B2B clients was an exotic car dealership. Mm. It sounds like Lambos, Ferraris, Royal Roy, you know, Rolls Royce, yes. you know, Aston Martins. You're, you know, you're talking 250 to $600,000 cars, average person, right? And so I walk in there, this is before even, this is four years ago when we launched, before I had our virtual training and all that stuff. So I'm walking in there to do workshops, right? This is before we had all of our virtual training stuff, okay? And I remember the sales manager said, rich people don't have problems, Jeremy. Like, I mean, they just buy the, they're just rich. They just buy it if they like it or they don't buy it. I'm like, interesting, really. They might not have, what you sell doesn't solve a problem because driving from point A to point B, they could just drive a $3,000 used Honda. Right. They don't need a $350,000 Lambo. However, that car is solving some type of an emotional need, a status need. Okay. Otherwise they'd buy a used Honda. Cause why would you spend a hundred times more to buy a car to go to point A to point B? It wouldn't make any sense. And I said, do you see my car out there? And at that time I, I, this was geez, four years ago. So I still had, I had this Maserati that I bought and I had it decked out. It was the Quattroporte. It's like 180 some thousand dollar cars, like the most expensive car I've ever bought. I just love Maseratis. I was like, do you know why I bought that car four years ago? And he said, because you're rich. And I said, no. I said, I bought that to fulfill an emotional need. When I was a child around 12 years old, my stepdad lost his job. He became disabled. He got lupus couldn't work. We went from a middle-class family to like a welfare family in like 90 days, like literally my mom had to go back to work. She was a stay-at-home mom. She had no degree. She had to be a waitress. Then she was going to college part-time. Literally we were on like food stamps in 90 days. And I remember that next summer going to baseball practice and all my friends had the Nike cleats on and Adidas and all the cool stuff that I used to be able to wear yeah. a lot. My parents couldn't afford that stuff anymore. So I had the cheap void cleats from Walmart. This is, you know, this is in the mid nineties. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I remember getting made fun of, and I felt this feeling of like, I was so embarrassed that I was like, I'm never going to be poor again. Like something in my mind, it wasn't those words, but something that was in my mind. was like, I don't want to ever feel like this. I'm never going to be in this situation. Now, I didn't know what that meant as a 12 year old, but as I got older, 17, 18, 19, 20, I'm like, how do I make money? That's where I started thinking that that was driving me from that feeling of pain emotionally to get to that level. And once I achieved that in sales and I started doing that, I started buying expensive stuff because I wanted my old classmates to mm -hmm. see how I had arrived way over them. I wanted the status in my neighborhood to see people, you know, I was successful and that drove me fulfilled an emotional need. And when I said that, the guy's like, jaw drop. He's like, I never thought about it that way. I'm like, yeah, you're solving an emotional need for these people. They want status. Okay. They're not just coming to buy a car because they're rich. They want emotional status. They're solving some type of emotional need and they want that feeling that they have arrived. And then that changed everything for them. Huh. Interesting story. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Um, well, we're coming to a close. And as I said, I know we could talk forever about all of this, but I would like to ask you a couple other questions. One, um, you know, 
with my audience of, you know, there's a lot of sales and everything. We all, we're all in sales, like you said. Supposedly, I think everybody in the world's in some type absolutely, of Absolutely. Absolutely. Even my little three-year-old grand, almost three-year-old granddaughter, she's always negotiating. See? Yeah. Oh, totally. I influence and persuade even from. Yeah. Grandma, can I come to your house? Do you have a present for me? That sounds very familiar. I have a, yeah. I have an almost four-year-old, so I know. Yeah. That. Oh yeah. It's perfect. Anyway. Um, and I melt every time she says oh, that. Oh, I know. It's hard. Um, so, um, so based on the fact that we're all in, in sales, what would the best piece of advice be to my audience around that? Just one piece of advice. That you Let would me give you one word of advice. And if they, if they want any free resources, we can give them our Facebook group and then get some Perfect. resources that they want to sell more. So I don't let me forget to give that link. No, up. and I'll put it in the show notes anyway. So that's good. I think... Um, you know, I was doing an event uh, probably about three months ago and, and somebody in the audience, they said, uh, Jeremy, if you could describe selling in one word, what would that word be? And it took me probably about 10 seconds. I'm sitting there like five to 10 seconds. I'm like thinking like, what would be the word? And I said, all selling is, is change. That's what selling is. It's change. It's about how good you are at helping your prospect view in their mind that by changing their situation, that means paying for your product or service, mm-hmm. then by them doing that is far less risky for them than them doing nothing at all, staying in the status quo, the problems stay the same and nothing ever changes for them. Mm-hmm. So whether your prospect wants something better or let's say they're trying to you know, move away from the newfound pain, your questions have allowed them to relive, okay? Mm-hmm. It's all about change. now. Here's your one problem. This is a major problem. Selling is all about change, but human beings psychologically do not like change. Right. So selling is all change. Human beings psychologically do not like change, even though they say they do, because it makes us feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. especially when it's initiated by some pushy salesperson that's ready to pitch our products or services within 10 seconds of meeting a prospect. Human behavior shows that we value something that is more consistent, and something that is familiar, even if we don't like it, over something that is newer to us. Think, think battered spouse syndrome. They don't like the spouse. Right. Why do they keep coming back? Because they fear the unknown. They don't know what's out there. They, don't, they fear change. You see what I mean? Yeah. It, that's all selling is. It, 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 it's social dynamics. Everything is all about the fear of change. All right. So we have to get our prospects to view in their mind. And it's not by telling them because we tell them it's in one ear, out the other. There's no trust there. They have to to come from them. Our questionability allows them to tell themselves that them changing far less risky than them doing nothing at all. And once we learn the questions around that, selling becomes extremely easy, very profitable. And the great thing is, is you help 10 times more of your prospects get where they want to go. Because if you don't learn how to communicate the right way to them, whose fault is it that they're not purchasing? It's ours, not theirs. Yeah, I get that they might have a fear mindset or broke mindset. Welcome to the real world. It's your job to help them overcome that way of thinking that's allowed them to stay in the same situation. So it's up to your skill level to do that, not theirs. Right. So uh, that made me think of another question. I can't help myself. So when you're in a room full of people that you're training, salespeople, sales teams that you're training, do you see when the light goes on? 
Can you oh, when they take the red pill? Yeah. Rather yeah. than the blue pill. Yeah. yeah. Usually, you know, it's just sometimes it's just it's the same thing when you're when you're training on stage. Sometimes it's just asking certain questions to your audience mm -hmm. that gets them to challenge their way of thinking that's allowed their situation to oh. stay the same. You know, like if I asked everybody on here, what's your, what's your biggest expense in life? What do you think they might say? If I said, what's your biggest expense in life? What would the average person say? Might say their house or their, their house, their kids, yeah. cars. Yeah. Well, here's my suggestion. If I'm talking to a group of salespeople or business owners, then they're all going to say that. And I'd even say, well, I think your taxes are even more expensive than that. Really, if you break it down, that's your biggest expense. But I said, do you know what your really biggest expense in life is? And everybody's like, what? It's your lack of knowledge. Your biggest expense in life as a sales professional or a business owner is your lack of knowledge that allows you for your income to stay exactly the same thing as a sales professional. So let's say if you're a salesperson, what's, what's, a, what's, what's the average salesperson really want to get to? A lot of people want to ask, they're like, I, I, if I could make 300 grand a year, I would be like on cloud 100. Let's just yeah. say that. Yeah. So let's say that you're an above average salesperson and you make 80 grand a year right now. So you, you take a piece of paper, write down 300 grand, because that's what you want to make. Mm -hmm. What did you what did you make last year? So let's say if you made 60 grand or 80 grand last year, write that underneath 300 and subtract that. And let's say you have 220,000 left. Circle that number. That's your biggest, that's your biggest expense. That's what you paid life last year because you still haven't learned the right skills that work with human behavior that will allow you to have the ability to make 300 grand a year or more as a sales professional. Mm -hmm. So the question we have to ask is, do you want to keep paying life 220 grand every single year, year after year after year, because you're still not willing to learn the skills that get your prospects to sell and persuade themselves. So biggest expense in life is lack of knowledge. And that's where we started this conversation. And so I think it's a great way to end it. And I thank you for that. Yeah. Um, that information. So I, I like to ask one um, non-related question at the end of my interviews that I find. All these, all these questions. No, like, last I, one, I, questions. I got one more question. No, I got three. I, I got three more. That caused me to think. I'm like, okay. Before we go to the last question, tell people where they can find you. Sure. Yeah. If they want to, uh, the best place to, to get information from mm -hmm. us, like resources, just have them join our Facebook group. Uh, they can go to salesrevolution.pro. www.salesrevolution.pro.pro. Yep. Yep. Right when they join, uh, guys, check your Facebook Messenger, and somebody on my team will message over a free uh, training to you called the NEPQ 101 mini course. And it's a breakdown of different NEPQ questions you can use for different sales okay. situations, no matter your industry, that will help you sell more. And it's done by uh, my CEO, uh, Matt Ryder, that will break it down for you. And we go live in that group about three or four times a week with different trains, different Q&As. So if they want to sell more and they want to start getting little nibbles, because we get little nibbles and hors d'oeuvres in there, have them just join the free Facebook group. That's the best place to start. Perfect. Okay. Promise. Last question. Um, it's two parts. Number one, because I am always about my favorite word is curiosity. Okay. You think curiosity is innate or learned? And part two, what are you most curious well, about? There must be something behind that question about curiosity, learned or innate. What do you, where's it coming from? So I understand the background. Um, there's no hidden meaning there. I just love, I am a curious person and I just like to know um, my take on it is one thing. I'd like to know what other people think in terms of if curiosity is. I think there are certain people that are more curious than others. However, with that being said, 
there are certain ways and questions and things you can say that will trigger anybody to become pretty curious. Hopefully that answers your question. Well, that's interesting. That's, uh, to me, that's a salesperson's answer. I love it. <laughs> it's the truth though. Yeah, like, no, it's your what truth. What I don't want to do is think if salespeople think like, oh, well, they're just not a curious person. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, help make them curious by yeah. what you say and ask that triggers more curiosity because there's always going to be more people some people that are more curious than others yes. but that doesn't mean you can't help other people become more curious for sure i love it great answer all right and what are you most curious about these days you know i am most curious about uh, just the way people think in large, you know, especially politics. I, I'm not really a political person. I'm kind of like right in the middle of all this craziness and all these countries and stuff, but yeah. I love to watch how politicians communicate and how people react to that. I'm like, oh my gosh, if you would have just said it this way and relanguaged it, nobody would have even done anything that would have all agreed with you, even though that's not really what their side of the fence believes. But because you said it this way, you triggered that way of thinking. So that's how I think when I see yeah. people communicate, I'm like, oh, you just triggered that response. Yeah, that's I'm a weird guy. I'm just like, no, it's good. And I noticed that also, number one, your podcast, I didn't say the name of it. It's Closers Are Losers. I know, yeah. Closers are losers, maybe. And your new book that's coming out, The New Model of Selling, Selling, the New Model of Selling, Selling to an Unsellable. Yeah, so that, that is being published uh, by Morgan James in October. Um, so if they, get the, if they get in the Facebook group, they'll get updates on that because they'll be on our email list and stuff. So they'll get updates when they can leave the book. That'll be available on Audible and Amazon in October. It will not be in bookstores like Barnes and Noble until March, I think March 3rd or something like that. They release it during spring break with most people in the United States. So if you want to get it on Amazon or the Audible, I believe it's available in October. Um, they can get on a uh, like a our email list that will get updates about it when they join the Facebook group. And then the heart, like the, if you want to go like into a bookstore and, you know, see it before you get it, Barnes and Noble and stuff, that'll be available in March next year. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah, for hey, that's co-authored by my good friend, Jerry Acuff, who's the CEO of Delta Point Consulting. It's a very large uh, sales training company out of the East coast. So it's also, uh, he's awesome. So both him and I have given like our years of experience in sales, talk a lot about disarming prospects in that book. So it'll help a lot of people for sure. That's awesome. Well, we may have to have you and Jerry. Jerry's, um, Jerry's an animal. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much again. And thank you to my audience for listening. Please let us know if you enjoyed what you heard, leave a good review and remember to stay connected and be remembered. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. If this show has inspired you to reach out to connect to someone new or nurture a current or past relationship, and you think that others can benefit from listening, please share this episode. If you have feedback or questions about the episode, please leave a note in the comment sections below. If you would like to receive automatic updates of new podcast episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or from the podcast app on your mobile device. Ratings and reviews from my listeners are extremely valuable to me and greatly appreciated. They help the podcast rank higher on iTunes, which exposes my show to more awesome listeners like you. So if you have a minute, please leave an honest review on iTunes. And remember to stay connected and be remembered.